Thank you for worshiping so well this morning. I sense the Lord really at work here among us and pray that he will continue to carry us along as we have gathered in his name. So I'm beginning a sermon series this morning that will last for the next couple months or so on the fruit of the Spirit, which you can find, of course, in one of Paul's letters, the letter that he wrote to a group of churches in the province of Galatia. Galatia is in a country that we now call Turkey, kind of Central Asia Minor back then, 2,000 years ago. The province of Galatia wasn't too far from where Paul himself had grown up in the city of Tarsus down along the southern coast of Asia Minor. And Galatia was part of a kingdom at the time that Paul wrote this letter. What was that kingdom, that empire? The Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. And the Romans had a had a philosophy about conquering the world, and that is that you didn't want to stamp out the religions of the people that you conquered. You just added them, glommed them on to the the, uh, the other religions that the Romans and others worshipped. So the Roman Empire was quite a pluralistic melting pot of pagan gods, emperor worship, Judaism, because the Jews had been scattered over hundreds of years leading up to the time of Christ and the time of Paul. So there were Jewish congregations in many of these uh, cities and towns. And now, of course, Christianity was beginning to spread. I, I was reminded of the pluralistic melting pot nation in which we live, right? People have come here from every conceivable nation, bringing with them their own religions and philosophies. And uh, in, in one sense, they're competing in another. They just kind of live alongside of each other. But uh, included in this melting pot, of course, is Christianity with different Christian denominations, which seem increasingly to have different perspectives on what the gospel is and how it's lived out, Right. So Paul feels the need back then, and I think in our own lives today, Paul feels the need to remind the Galatians and to remind us of some of the basic foundations that have gotten a little bit confused over the course of time. So I'd invite you to listen to this for our own benefit. First of all, Paul's reason for writing to the Galatians is because they're beginning to turn from the gospel that he had proclaimed. He was an itinerant missionary preacher, church planter, went from town to town, town to city, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and starting congregations and appointing leaders and then moving on from there. But the Galatians, now several years after they had gotten started in the faith, were beginning to uh, turn away from the gospel that Paul had proclaimed to another gospel. The other gospel that Paul is referring to in, in this letter are what we might call Judaizers. I had mentioned that there were Jewish people who had been scattered across the Roman Empire and they had taken with them their love of the law of Moses. They met in synagogues. Eventually, some of those Jewish people were converted to Christianity, but some of them 
believed that for the Gentiles in the Roman Empire, the Gentiles of Galatia, who were now being won to Christ, that it wasn't enough just to believe in the grace of God demonstrated in the life and teachings and miracles of Jesus, but instead you had to first become a Jew. In order to be a Christian, these Gentiles first needed to become a Jew, which would have meant what? If you were a man, it meant circumcision. Woohoo! There's a winning church planting evangelistic strategy, isn't it? And it wasn't just circumcision, of course, it was all of the laws. The Ten Commandments and the laws, the regulations of Judaism. So these Judaizers would tell these Gentile Christians, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. First, you have to become a Jew, which is a different gospel than the one Paul had proclaimed. Paul had suggested if they wanted to look back to the Old Testament, you shouldn't look at Moses and the law. Instead, you ought to look at Abraham. Why is that, do you suppose? What was it about Abraham's story that was more like Jesus and the gospel of Christ? Abraham believed God. And that and that alone was credited to him as righteousness, right? So he said, if you are looking for some forerunner of, I mean, obviously Moses and the law were a forerunner of Christ, but he says if you really want to look back to somebody that will get you on the right track, look at Abraham and the faith that he had, the obedience that he demonstrated just because God had called him to leave his family and leave his homeland and go to the place that he would show him. So with all of this argument going on back and forth, the members of the Galatian churches were becoming polarized. These arguments about how you became a Christian and what it meant to be a Christian and who could be a Christian divided them, and they began to weaken the body of Christ. So we pick up the story in Galatians chapter 5, if you want to join me there. He's been talking about setting the stage up until this point. But in Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 13, he writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Read it with me. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul suggests some polarities of his own in these passages. The first polarity is freedom versus slavery. Freedom versus slavery. Freedom through grace and faith in Christ versus slavery to the law of Moses and our sinful human nature, which he calls the flesh. The law of Moses, he says, he reminds them, is unable to set us free from the flesh. It's unable to set us free from our sinful human nature. 
If you want freedom, don't go down that trail. The second polarity that Paul mentions here is the spirit versus the flesh. Freedom in Christ enables us to live according to the leading of the Holy Spirit, right? Versus reverting to the law of Moses, which inevitably results in enslavement to the desires of the flesh. The law is unable to set us free from our enslavement to the law of sin and death. It's only the law of the Spirit that can do that, he reminds the Romans. The third polarity is love versus destruction. Living a life of mutual love with one another is enabled by the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things that we can't do without the Spirit. Praise God for the gift that he gives us when we're saved of being able to love him and love one another. The destruction, in contrast, is this biting and devouring one another. What horrible words he uses to describe what's going on in some of these congregations. They're biting and devouring each other. Can't think of a more ghastly description, which is leading to the destruction of the church of Jesus Christ. If it was one thing that was made clear during this coronavirus pandemic, it's been how easily we have become polarized, right? Have you experienced that? You heard about that? You felt that? It has stirred up our tendency to be strong-willed children. We have been a country and perhaps a world of terrible twos for the last year and a half. Insisting on doing what we want, regardless of the greater good. This is the kind of thing Paul was talking about at the beginning of this passage. This in strong contrast to the call he gives them to love one another. The Galatians were entertaining two different gospels, which resulted in two completely different lifestyles. The gospel of Christ that Paul proclaimed was a gospel of spirit-enabled freedom from slavery, from the flesh, from destruction. But it was also a freedom for, it was a freedom for the ability given by the Holy Spirit to love God and to love one another, set free from sin that we might love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's look more closely at this polarity between the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, beginning at verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, Factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Pardon me while I spit to get that taste out of my mouth. (laughs) I warn you, he says, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then my favorite word in the Bible, but... (laughs) But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since they live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This passage contrasts the acts or the works of the flesh on one hand with the fruit of the Spirit on the other. Our sinful nature, without the grace and faith of Christ, produces the works of our own hands, which we call personal sins. The infilling of the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, produces the fruit of the Spirit, the natural outflow of what the Spirit is doing in us. In the weeks to come, we're going to spend uh, time each Sunday looking at one of these fruit of the Spirit. So let's begin this morning with the first one, love. Love. In the Old Testament, there were several words that were used in the Hebrew language to describe various kind of love relationships. The word chesed, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, emphasizes loyalty and covenant faithfulness and steadfast love. In reference to God specifically, it describes the God who is whose constancy and forgiveness go beyond the stipulations of the covenant. You know, when we're looking at a contract, we probably look at that and say, you know, what is the most I have to do to honor this contract? I don't want to to give anything more that I'm not going to receive and I'm not going to get paid for. You know, what's the contract? What's the covenant? What's the minimum I have to do to honor this? But Hesed refers to a God who is looking to exceed whatever the covenant stipulations are. The God who wants to overflow. What a beautiful description of the love of God. A God who makes covenants and then provides everything that the other party needs to be successful in that covenant. The God who makes covenants, and even though his people, the other party, break the covenants over and over and over and over again, God comes in with words of judgment, a rebuke, and then always offers restoration, redemption, renewal, doesn't he? I mean, you break the contract once in this world, and I'm sorry, but you're out of the house. You're out of the whatever the arrangement is. Been reading through my chronological Bible, my goal this year. Last month or so has been all of that first and second kings stuff. You know, one after another, kings who are just worse than the one before. Every once in a while in Judah, there would be a good king, kind of get them back on, on track. But no matter how many times the Israelites failed God, he always said, but I want you to come back home. I want you to be my people. So hesed, the Hebrew word describing this kind of love. The Greek language had several words likewise to describe various love relationships, but they didn't have a word that captured what hesed carried with it, this extraordinary love of God. So the New Testament writers redefined a weak, orphaned Greek word, agape. It lacked 
any fixed linguistic heritage. It was just one of those words that was used occasionally to describe some kind of love, but it didn't mean all that much. The writers of the New Testament adopted that word and they infused it with the meaning of hesed, coupling with the love that was demonstrated by Christ, the ultimate expression of God's love for us. Agape came to mean, as one commentator translated it, unconquerable benevolence. Unconquerable benevolence. Turn to your husband or your wife or the family member sitting next to you and say, I love you with unconquerable benevolence. I I really mean it, folks. Turn to the person. (laughs) What a beautiful thing. No matter what a person may do to us by way of insult or injury or humiliation, the commentator wrote, we will never seek anything else but their highest good. You insult me, I'm still looking for your highest good. You injure me, I'm still working for your highest good. Agape is a feeling of the mind as much as of the heart. Agape is a matter of the will as much as the emotions. Agape creates community. Agape prompts obedience. Agape provides motivation. Agape compels concern. Agape provides purpose. Agape stabilizes relationships. Agape transforms character. Love isn't just a a definition on a page, is it, though, right? It's not just a word in the dictionary. It's best seen and understood in real people's lives. 750 years or so before Christ, there was a man named Hosea. And God rang the bell one day and said, Hosea, I would like you to go marry this promiscuous woman named Gomer. It's bad enough that she's promiscuous. It's even worse that her name is Gomer. (laughs) And Hosea, I want you to marry her and have children with her. And in pretty short order, three children were born. And I can just imagine Hosea and Gomer with their baby name book, trying to come up with some beautiful names for their children. But God interrupts that and says, no, no, I I have names for them, thank you very much. Your first son, I want you to name Jezreel, which was the site of a horrible massacre. Nice name. Their second child, a daughter, was named Not Loved. This is my daughter, not loved. How do you feel being introduced around like that? The third child, another son, name him not my people. Disinherited from the day he received his name, you're not my people. 
These names were given by God because those children represented something more than just the sons and daughter of Gomer and Hosea, right? Those children represented the children of God, his chosen people, the Israelites. God was saying, if you continue to disobey, if you continue to go after other gods, you're not going to be loved. You're not going to be my people. There's going to be a massacre Eventually, Gomer left Hosea for another man. I can't help but think that naming the children like that might have had something to do with it. I I don't know. We pick up their story, though, in Hosea chapter 3. The Lord said to Hosea, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. That's the worst, isn't it? Loving the sacred raisin cakes. Still trying to figure out what that means. So Hosea says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. This is what love looks like. This is what the fruit of the Holy Spirit looks like in real life. And of course, this is a picture of the love that God has for his bride, the church, us. Would you turn to the person next to you and say, God loves you that much? And think about that for a moment. Do you deserve that kind of love? Have you demonstrated that kind of love for God? But God loves you like that. No matter how many times we stumble and fall, no matter how many times we stubbornly resist, God loves you and me like that. Where have you seen that kind of agape love in your life, in your family? in your workplace. Can you very, very briefly describe a time when you saw somebody live out the the agape love of God? It's testimony time. Real short testimonies. In sickness, how many of you have had somebody clean up your barf? 
somebody do the the disgusting work of caring for a person who's sick. We've all experienced that in one way or another, haven't we? That's the love of God. What else? Where else? And who else? husband who picks up the slack when a wife has been terribly injured and hospitalized. Where have you seen the agape love of God in your life? Patrick, you've already had one shot. Oh, go ahead. So a father dies, Patrick is having, recovering from heart surgery, and people reach out to him to encourage him. I can't imagine perhaps a more discouraging time of life than to face multiple bad news, horrible things happening. To have somebody come along and say, I love you, I care for you, I'm looking out for you, I'm going to help you. That's the love of God. The fruit of the Spirit are qualities of God that are made manifest in our lives when we're filled with, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's said that Christ became one of us. Christ became like us, that we might become like God. I don't know how you feel about that phrase, but it always makes me a little bit uncomfortable because we are so completely aware of the fact that we are not like God most of the time, right? But the truth of the matter is God pours out his Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can become like Jesus. We can love like Jesus And if Jesus is God, therefore, to complete the syllogism, we can become like God. We can love like Jesus loved if we are filled with the Spirit of Jesus. A little bit more conviction, please. (laughs) The fruit of the Spirit is the result of God's holy making work in our lives. The sanctifying, holy-making work of God begins with the saving work of Christ, grace through faith, which sets us free from sin and death, right? The sanctifying work of God continues through the renewing of our minds and hearts by the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
The sanctifying work of God enables us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. And the flourishing fruit of the Spirit in our lives is also the measure of our active participation in God's sanctifying work in our life, right? How are we doing at this? Become a fruit inspector. I suggest you inspect your own fruit before you inspect the fruit of other people. (laughs) But if we're not seeing fruit, then we need to question how much we're cooperating with the sanctifying work of God. God wants us to make us, wants to make us like Christ. The more we cooperate with God's image restoring, holy making work, the more we come to resemble God. God is love. John 4, the first John 4, something, something. John, this, this is who God, God is love. So are we. Would you bow your heads with me? And let's reflect together for a few moments this morning. Let's do a little fruit inspecting. Ask yourself the question, how does my spirit-filled life define the word love for those who are looking on? How does my life describe and define, model Set an example of the love of God at work in me. And if you look back over the last few days or weeks or months... We could use the pandemic as an excuse, couldn't we? A lot of stress, a lot of pressure, a lot of tension, a lot of change, a lot of things to grieve about. But it's in those very times that the love of God is most clearly seen. Go buy back your adulterous wife, Hosea. Because I want to demonstrate my redeeming love for Israel. How is love doing in your life these days? Lord, I pray that this morning as we listen to your Holy Spirit, as we allow you to search and know our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would not allow us to make excuses, but instead, Father, give us the grace to be able to confess and repent, to take ownership of our lovelessness. Father, we are overwhelmed this morning as we think about the fact of your love for us, your merciful, patient, 
steadfast love for us. A love that exceeds the terms of the covenant. A love that goes to the cross. Lord, we are overwhelmed by that. We are moved by that. We are inspired by that. We are transformed by that. We desire to be able to love you that way. And Lord, we desire to be able to love our kids and our parents and our brothers and sisters and our neighbors and our colleagues at work and our students at school. Lord, we desire to love them that way as well. And Lord, we confess that the only way that's going to happen is if we are filled by your Holy Spirit. So Lord, pour out your Spirit. We are willing. We are willing to be sanctified, Father. We thank you for setting us free from the need to obey 10,000 commandments. And instead forgiving us because we merely confess our sins and accept your mercy and embrace your Holy Spirit. Have your way in us, Father. And not just today, but Lord, this week when things get back to normal at work or neighborhoods and families, Lord, we pray that in the nitty-gritty of life, just like Hosea and Gomer, we would be able this week to love one another to love our neighbor as ourselves. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name we pray and all of God's children say, Amen.